0: For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kelly. I thought I would start this morning by getting a show of hands for all of you that wake up every day with a smile on your face. Sunshine and roses just in your mind. Uh, yeah, pretty low percentage. Thought it might be. Uh, but what if I ask you this question? What if I asked you to show me or give me a show of hands for the number of you that wake up angry? Sometimes depressed, sometimes gloomy, anxious. Yeah, a few more hands popping up. Uh, Guys, I know I certainly do. I shared this with my community group not too long ago. I shared, hey, sometimes I feel like I'm the only one that struggles with this, right? That I'm the only one that ever wakes up this way. That I'm the only one that can wake up angry or anxious or depressed for no other reason than for the simple fact that I just woke up, right? Right? Some of you guys maybe can relate to that. Uh, I know this past Monday and Tuesday morning, woke up in a good spot, right? Come off of just a high last uh, Sunday with worship, and we're kind of ready to meet the day on Monday morning, excited, feeling good, ready to open God's word and prepare prepare for this message. I was just in a good spot, was feeling blessed. Then Wednesday rolled around. Wednesday morning was a little different, right? I mean, man, Wednesday caught me off guard. Wednesday morning, I just woke up angry. By no apparent reason, just angry. And I'm not talking about just a little, got the case of the grumpies because I haven't gotten my morning coffee yet. I'm talking about angry at the world kind of angry. Anybody relate to that? Yeah, and so because this is not new to me, I've got a routine. I sit down, I have my coffee, uh, open God's word, and I just begin to pray. Hey, God, I pray that my, this anger that I've got this morning would not be a distraction from my time in your word, would not be a distraction from whatever it is that you have in store for me today, uh, and so I just began to, to pray that, began to press in God's word, and God began to press back. And he, he just said, hey, I, w- I want you to process this anger. What are you actually mad at? Because that was not uh, a fun time. It's kind of embarrassing, actually, as my insecurities just came to the surface, right? I began to think about what was I angry at? And I began to think about uh, inadequacy that I felt as a, as a husband, as a father, as a, as a leader, Began to think of compare myself to Rockwall culture. And I started to feel super inadequate thinking about myself as a provider. And I just, man, I was just kind of feeling insecure, just angry about all those things. And then it hit me. I mean, I've been preparing for this passage already on Monday and Tuesday. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it hit me. God, the air that I'm breathing right now is because of your generosity and because of your blessing. Forgive me. Forgive me for making this all about me. And then all my entire perspective changed because I realized that Wednesday morning was a blessing too, right? It wasn't based on how I was feeling. The reason I tell you this is because in our text today we're going to see that according to Jesus the greatest blessings are not found in the external where a lot of us have a tendency to look. Where I was looking on Wednesday morning. But rather the greatest blessings are found in the internal. That Jesus doesn't talk about the external parts of our life in in the way that the world does. He doesn't talk about us living our best life now, as a lot of us like to call it. But instead that Jesus talks about living our blessed life now. And so today we're going to begin our study on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to do so by starting at the, uh, with the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes are eight declarations spoken by Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where he describes where the blessed life is truly found. Okay? But before we continue, I want to ask you uh, to prepare yourself to learn by paradox today. Uh, and if you don't know what I mean, uh, a paradox is a statement that seems to say two opposite things, but yet both are true. Uh, So to further explain this, I thought I'd uh, simply read a few passages from the Bible that seem to make seemingly opposite statements but are not only true but absolutely essential for the believer. Uh, For example, the Bible says to the believer, uh, if you want to be first, you must first be last. Uh, If you desire wisdom, you must first become a fool. If you want to gain life, you need to first lose it. If you want to become rich, you must first become poor. In the same vein, uh, I thought I'd read to you just a snippet of a Puritan prayer from a a book that I have grown to love dearly called The Valley of Vision. Uh, I've talked about this numerous times over the years. Uh, This book was given to me by one of you guys when we first planted the church. And it truly has been a blessing to use that word in my life. Uh, But the opening prayer of this book, it says, let me learn by paradox. That the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. And that to give is to receive. So, guys, today I want us to learn by paradox. Okay, and so the plan for today is we're going to take a look at the first two Beatitudes and we're going to look at some application. We're going to look at uh, our need uh, to recognize our spiritual poverty Uh, We're going to look at our need to respond with godly sorrow. And for application, we're going to look at the need to receive these truths and then report them to others. Okay? Uh, So for some context, uh, the timeline of our text is found shortly after Jesus was baptized and began his ministry. Since then, Jesus has been tempted in the desert. Uh, He's chosen some disciples. And now he's beginning to teach them, to disciple them. Uh, And so you might also keep in mind that these disciples, they don't know what we know yet about the cross, just considering the timeline. And to set up some additional context, uh, I just wanted to quickly look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. So, seeing the crowds, he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So, in this very first verse, we get some context. Uh, Matthew tells us some super helpful information about the audience. Uh, if you'll notice, he said, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. So, who do we know are present? Crowds. A lot of people are present, Right? But then who does the text say that Jesus began to teach? His disciples. They're the ones that came to him. Guys, this is tremendously valuable information. Because as we identify Jesus' disciples as his audience, uh, we identify who this sermon is directed to. Okay? Jesus is teaching his disciples, those who are already following him, but he has the crowds in mind. As well. So you might keep in mind what Martin Luther once said of this passage that uh, Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become Christians, but only about the works and fruit that no one can do unless they are Christians. Makes sense? Got a little context behind us. Uh, understanding that, Matthew now tells us that the same God who spoke life into creation begins to open his mouth and speak life into his people. The text tells us that on this mountainside, he sat down and he began to teach. That's the way rabbis taught back then. They would, they would sit and their disciples would sit at their feet. So he's on this mountainside, opening his mouth, beginning to bless his people. So under the theme of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus begins his sermon by pronouncing the conditional idea of, once again, not living your best life now, but instead living your blessed life now. And he tells his disciples, and guys, he also tells us, those of us that are believing and trusting in him today, how we can find this as well. So let's look at what he says in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Guys, we toss around this term blessed a lot, right? Blessed, blessed. Uh, we pray that God would bless our family. We thank God for our many blessings. We pray that God would bless our ministries. Uh, when someone sneezes, we say, bless you. Right, but what does this even mean? What does it mean to be blessed? Uh, if you do a, a social media search, and you can find some interesting things, right? Uh, just put in the hashtag blessed, and all kinds of stuff will come up. Uh, college scholarship, hashtag Blessed. Um, Unexpected raise, hashtag blessed. Uh, Great family, great vacation, hashtag blessed. Um, But guys, the actual actual word that Jesus uses here for blessed, it has a much deeper meaning than any of those things, any of those external things. I'm going to get a little nerdy on you for a minute, but uh, this word, it comes from the Greek word makarios. Uh, it means blessed, it means happy, it means fortunate, but it's a word that goes far deeper than that. It's, it's so much deeper than a superficial happiness. Uh, and in this context, Jesus uses this word to state uh, a, a spiritual well-being, uh, a deep joy of the soul, okay? It's like a spiritual prosperity. Um, to go one level deeper, it's not even an action, it's a, it's a state of being. To go one level deeper, it's not even that, it, it's, it's, it's the core of our identity, that's how deep this word runs. But what we quickly follow, find is that Jesus follows this word with descriptions of blessed or blessed that I don't think any of us would find on social media with hashtag blessed. Okay, if you just look at a quick list of, this, of the Beatitudes, you see poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. You guys see any any of those on that list that have anything to do with the external? No. And so once again, we need to learn by paradox. We need to learn that to receive God's blessing, we must first recognize our spiritual poverty. Okay? Now, now just to be clear, uh, although there are some, certainly some direct correlations uh, to economics here, to be poor in spirit in this passage uh, does not mean economic poverty. Okay, it does not mean that. It, is, it also does not mean that we have no spiritual backbone or uh, a backbone at all. God bless you. Um, it means those that are spiritually bankrupt. Those that are spiritually bankrupt. Those who recognize their complete dependency on God. As I really want to hammer this point for a minute because I'm just going to say Something. we live in Rockwall, Texas, one of the wealthiest places in the world. And although this term poor poor in spirit does not uh, mean economic poverty, there's some direct correlations. And and this idea of being uh, poor in spirit can be a really hard thing for those of us living in Rockwall, Texas, to grasp. Those of us in this culture that have such a hard time admitting need, admitting that we're dependent on anybody because we're so self-reliant and self-sufficient and sufficiently wealthy. Let me hammer this point. These get, those who are poor in spirit, guys, they recognize that apart from God, they are lost, they are hopeless, and they are helpless. That no matter one's education, no matter one's wealth, no matter one's social status, no matter one's ed, uh, accomplishments, no matter one's biblical knowledge, apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, every single person in this room is poor in spirit, is bankrupt. It's a pretty heavy idea, I know. How many of you guys have ever heard the argument that uh, Christianity is a crutch? Maybe you've had that thought yourself, that Christianity is a crutch for those that can't make it on their own, right? It's for the weak. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, some of you. It's an argument that's often generated by an atheist culture. Right? They would claim that due to their intellectualism, they have no need for such a crutch as Jesus. And I think because of this, sometimes it trickles into our culture that Christians are often characterized as those that are weak, that are naive, that they need some sort of a crutch just to get them through life. And so that's why they cling to this thing called faith. Guys, Christianity is actually not a crutch. Right? We don't need just a little support from a crutch. Right? We need to realize that apart from Christ, we're completely paralyzed and we need a Savior. Okay, Mark chapter 2 verse 17, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who will ever come to get what Jesus has to give are those who are broken. Those that know that they are spiritually and morally and very often emotionally and physically crippled. Those are the ones that know they need a savior. They can't make it on their own. To explain this a little further, I thought I might share a riddle just full of illustrations today. Um, Kids, are you listening? Oh, yeah, it's usually past, okay, retraining you guys. So uh, the reason I asked if you're listening is because statistically 80% of kids get the answer to this riddle before adults do. So just going to toss this out here and see if you guys can get this. I'll put it on the screen. Uh, What is greater than God, more evil than the devil, the poor have it. The rich don't need it, and if you eat it, you'll die. Any kids know? What? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing's greater than God. Nothing's more evil than the devil. The poor have nothing, the rich need nothing, and if we eat nothing, we will die. Guys, the answer to the riddle is nothing. Nothing is greater than God. Being poor in spirit means that we recognize this. Being poor in spirit recognizes our complete dependency on him. Listen to me. Apart from Christ, the Bible says that we are sinners under the holy wrath of God. Apart from Christ, the Bible says that we deserve nothing but the judgment of God. Apart from Christ, the Bible says that we have nothing to offer with which to earn the kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit recognizes this. Recognizes that nothing is greater than God. John Calvin said it this way, only he who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. And so beginning at the, at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that only who, those who recognize this will the kingdom of God be given. For God's kingdom is a gift, guys. It's, it's absolutely undeserved and it's absolutely free. I want you to remember, it was not the Pharisees those who were the spiritual elite, those who thought they were cleaned up and and nice on the outside who received the kingdom of heaven. But who was it? And it was often the rejects of human society. It was those that knew they were so poor that they could offer nothing, they could achieve nothing in their own power, and so they cried out to God for mercy. I want you to see this in a parable in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. I'm going to put this on the screen. Uh, In this parable... Uh, uh, Jesus says also to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Uh, Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus: God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get in case you missed it, guys, this is the opposite of spiritual poverty. This is self-righteousness. But the tax collector, standing far off, look at what he does. Jesus says, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He'd be his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me as a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what it looks like to be poor in spirit. This is the guy who receives God's blessing. So guys, maybe we learn by paradox that the kingdom of heaven is given to those who are low, that are humble, that are broken. And let us also be warned that the opposite's true, right? That if any of us think otherwise, that we are just like the self-righteous Pharisees. So do you recognize that nothing is greater than God? You recognize that. When's the last time that you recognized your spiritual poverty? When's the last time you thought about that? When's the last time you hit your knees? I know we don't beat our breasts in this culture, but when's the last time you hit your knees and, and you had that mindset of, God, I, be merciful to me? It may have been a while. Hey, but this is the first beatitude. We must recognize our spiritual poverty. Once we do, however, how we respond to this is of utmost importance. Okay? See, regardless of our Enneagram number, a lot of us have a certain way that we respond to spiritual poverty. Right? I'm going to list just three quick ways. Right? Uh, one way is that we deny it. One way is that we bootstrap it. And another way is that we avoid it or we attempt to escape it. So deny it to deny it means that we, just like the Pharisees, we, we, we claim that there's nothing wrong in our lives, and we claim that all the time. Uh, and This typically results in uh, superficial relationships. Um, it typically results in self-righteousness. It uh, typically results in us uh, not letting people get too close to us, because if they get too close to us, then they might actually see some of that brokenness that we do know is there. Uh, and so what ends up happening a lot with those that fall into this category is they never let anybody get close enough, and if they do, then they'll shift over to the category of victim, and they'll remove themselves from that relationship. Okay? Uh, another way that we typically respond to spiritual poverty is bootstrap it. Uh, to bootstrap it means that we admit our spiritual poverty, but we try to change by our own efforts and power. Uh, this often results in us trying to be a better version of ourselves, which is not entirely wrong. But unless we admit the spiritual poverty and the sin within us is the problem then what happens is that we don't end up being a better version of ourselves. We end up being a worse version of ourselves. And we end up covered up in anxiety and covered up with exhaustion because we're trying to fix ourselves in our own power. And the other way we try to uh, deal with spiritual poverty a lot is to, uh, to avoid it. When we try to avoid it, guys, we usually try to escape it with drink or drug or activity or our screens open all the time. Whatever we can do to escape it. This is kind of self-explanatory because you know exactly what this one looks like. Like what this one looks like. Right, maybe for you it is drug or drink. Maybe it's another form of escape. But the bottom line is that whatever you're using to escape it, it's always a temporary fix. Okay, but Jesus says there's a better way. There's a better way. See, all those that I just listed, uh, they question the goodness of God, don't they? They're all man-centered, aren't they? Right? They're all crutches. Jesus says there's a better way. The truth is, Jesus never offered us a crutch. Right? He knew that we needed way more than that. So he offered us a cross. Being poor in spirit, it's not a call to be a better person with a better self-esteem. Being poor in spirit is a call to recognize our spiritual poverty and to respond uh, with complete dependency on God. Right? And And so the second condition of spiritual blessing, quickly follows. It's to respond with godly sorrow. To respond with godly sorrow. See, it's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it, but it's another thing to mourn it. Um, to find God's blessing, we must respond with godly sorrow. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus says it this way, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn and sorrow, same word. I'm going to get nerdy with you a minute, uh, again, but there are nine different words in the New Testament in the Greek uh, that describe the word mourning. Right? It's the same word for sorrow. It's the same word for grief. It's the same word for sadness. But the one that Jesus uses here is the strongest. Okay, this word for mourning, this word for sorrow, it represents the deepest, most heartfelt grief possible. It's typically the word that one would find uh, used after the loss of a loved one. Uh, It's the same word that uh, Jesus' disciples later used whenever they described how they felt when they didn't know that Jesus was raised from the dead yet. That kind of mourning, that kind of sorrow, it's a serious word. And so the reason Jesus uses this severity of word is to highlight the severity of sin. See, both individually and corporately, godly sorrow is a sensitivity to sin. That's the bottom line. Uh, Individually, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, He's saying, blessed are those who are aware of their spiritual poverty, aware of their sin, and are aware of their need to respond with sorrow, with mourning. But on a broader scale, corporately, uh, blessed are those who mourn, it means man, blessed are those who mourn because of the sin they see in the world. Right? What we see on the news, the injustice, the lack of integrity, the cruelty. We guys as Christians, we should mourn those things as well. It's a whole other sermon, though. So today we're going to focus on the individual. Individually... The reason Jesus says this is because godly sorrow does not focus on ourselves. It focuses on God. Question, who alone can forgive and remove sin in our lives? God. Godly sorrow focuses on God. R.C. Sproul once said it this way, and I just love this little term. He says, the blessing is not in the morning, it's in the comfort of God. Friends, for some of you, that may be what you need to hear today. All right, let me just say this to you. If there are, if you're here this morning and you are in any way self-medicating in order to try to find comfort from your sin, comfort from your spiritual poverty, I want you to know you're not alone. Right? You you know something's wrong inside. You've tried everything, you've tried to deny it, you've tried to bootstrap it, you've tried to escape it or avoid it, but it's still there, and you cannot shake it. You cannot find comfort from your sin. Let me say this to all of us, guys. Nobody will ever find comfort from them, their sin apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Nobody. That may be what you need to hear today. The blessing is not in the morning; It's in the comfort of God. It's only in God that we will ever find comfort from our sin. And it's another paradox, right, if you think about it. In order to find God's blessing and comfort, we need to first be sorrowful. We need to mourn. We need to mourn that sin. Now, I want to be clear here, too, because there's a big difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Uh, this is described for us in Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse ten. I'll put this on the screen for you as well. It says, "For godly grief, which is sorrow, it, it produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death." Okay, what this means is that for the believer, godly sorrow is a good thing, and it's a good thing because it leads to repentance. Uh, if you know your Old Testament, uh, you may recall that David had this kind of godly sorrow after his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, this is described for us in Psalm 51, 4. Uh, in the text, David cries out from his sorrow. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But That's a great picture of what godly sorrow looks like. And in fact, one of the marks of a true believer is that the believer recognizes their sin, they confess their sin, and they repent of their sin. Let me just say it another way. The mark of a true believer is not sinlessness, but a growing awareness of sin. In fact, it can be telling, right? Uh, If you never experience godly sorrow, friends, it may be that you're not believing. It may be that way, right? Uh, Let me just say this to non-believers. Non-believers experience occasional gut checks and some worldly sorrow, but what does it focus on? Themselves. Believers experience godly sorrow, which focuses on Christ's. Right? Prior to trusting in Christ, their sinful nature is unopposed and we don't have this. Uh, this explains why so many of you might remember that before you were Christians, you didn't have this. You didn't experience this kind of godly sorrow. Maybe for some of you, it explains why you don't experience it now. All right? I mean, if you haven't trusted Christ, you do what you want. I know I did, right? Prior to trusting Christ, other than some worldly sorrow from time to time, a fear of getting caught, honestly, I never experienced godly sorrow. I never did. I never repented. I was focused on me. As a non-believer, I didn't have the kind of sorrow described in this passage. But once I believed, that changed. It flipped, right? I became aware of my spiritual poverty, uh, and I responded with a, a godly sorrow. I began to mourn that sin, and then I began to repent of that sin upon my faith in Christ. So, guys, if you've never experienced this kind of godly sorrow, this may be a good opportunity for you to do so. Maybe a good opportunity to examine yourself, see if you're in the faith, right? Recognize your spiritual poverty, respond with godly sorrow, repent of your sin. All right? Think about this audience again. Jesus is speaking to his disciples with the crowds in mind. So kind of everybody's encompassed in this statement. And so let me just say it this way. I don't know where you are today. Uh, maybe you're one who has called yourself a disciple for a long time and you've been following Christ. Maybe today you're here and, and you're just beginning to learn what it means to be a disciple, just hearing that for the first time. Wherever any of us are today, the good news is that this blessing that God is offering in the Beatitudes is available to us today, right now, to receive it. See, the Beatitudes, they're not a prescription. They're not a prescription. They're a pronouncement. Their pronouncement. Uh, i getting nerdy with you again, but remember that word makarios, the Greek that I told you about. It's not an action. It's a way of being. It, it's not an action. So the Beatitudes are also, by the way, just to support this idea, uh, the word Beatitude, it comes from the Latin version of the New Testament. Uh, the word beati is, is translated blessed. And so the Beatitudes are called the Beatitudes because of that. And, and in the Latin, it's translated the same way. Blessed is not an action but it's a it's a state of being it's a pronouncement so jesus is pronouncing that those who are poor in spirit and those who are that do mourn their sin they are blessed and so whatever you do today i don't want you to leave here thinking oh i got this if i do that and if i do that then i get that that's not what jesus is saying here <coughs> jesus is not prescribing that those who possess external qualities will be blessed. What he's saying is he's pronouncing that those who embrace him will be blessed. It's a pronouncement. He doesn't describe actions, but rather those that are in a certain state of belief. In other words, those who are in Christ and have found a new identity in him. Okay? And this blessing that Jesus explains in this passage can only come through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Only come that way. So friends, how do we receive this? We receive this when we believe, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. That's how we receive this. And when we do, the person that receives this is the person that receives God's blessing. This is the person that receives the kingdom of God. This is the person that receives God's comfort. See, God wants to bless us with himself and he's made a way for that to happen through faith faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to remember a couple of things. Blessedness is not a superficial feeling of well-being based on circumstance. It's not the external. Right? Blessedness is a supernatural experience based on the fact that one's life is right with God through Christ. Guys, when we receive that, everything changes. Our perspective changes. And so what does a blessed life look like? Is it Hey, college scholarship, hashtag blessed. Is it unexpected raise, hashtag blessed. Great family, great vocation, hashtag blessed. Yeah, it is those things. Those things are blessings from God and we should give him praise for those things, right? But remember our riddle. What's better than God? Nothing. Nothing is better than God. The greatest blessing that God gives us is God himself. When we have that, Guys, we are truly blessed no matter what the external looks like. I want you to remember that since it's always greater to give than it is to receive, we should pass on this blessing. We should pass this on. So uh, I want to encourage us to remember today that if we have truly received this blessing, then we should share that blessing with others. As a final application point today, I want to encourage you to report what you've received. I want to encourage you to report this. Um, when we started, I told you about my Monday and Tuesday morning being good days, right? Uh, and there were good days on the outside. Uh, the problem with me thinking that, though, is that I was just looking at the external. And so what's wrong with me thinking on the good days, the good days that I feel good and, and everything is going well? What's wrong with me thinking that I'm blessed on those days? It's when other days are not like that, I may start thinking that I'm not blessed, right? Right? If I'm in Christ, I am. So that's simply not true, and and we now know this, but I wonder what you would have told me on Wednesday morning if you'd been sitting with me. If you'd been sitting with me Wednesday morning, what would you have said? Uh, What would you say at work or school this week if you see somebody who's struggling? What what do you say to somebody in your community group later today or later this week uh, when they confess a struggle to you? How do you respond to that? Do you tell them to deny it? I don't think so. Do you tell them to bootstrap it? We do that kind of thing a lot, right? But do we tell them to avoid it? I don't think so. But what do you tell them, right? Do you tell them to do those things, or do you offer them hope? Do you offer them hope in Jesus Christ? Guys, as I was thinking about what to leave you with today, I thought about how this connects to last week's passage so well, that we should be fishers of men. And I thought about, man, what a great evangelistic tool these first two beatitudes can be if we see them in this way, right? I mean, so many times I hear people say, hey, Ryan, I don't know how to share the gospel. I don't know how to share hope with others. Uh, is there some sort of a formula that we can use? Yeah, it probably is, but uh, think about the Beatitudes in this way, right? I mean, everybody wants to be blessed, right? We want to be blessed in our relationships and our businesses and our life and our marriages. Uh, we want to be blessed in Life and death and eternity. I mean, this is a world where everyone's usually talking about being blessed. But they're talking about it in an external way, right? Living our best life now. They're not talking about it in the way that Jesus is talking about it. Living our blessed life now. So, if you, <clears throat> But if you share with them hope in Jesus Christ, it might just change their entire perspective. If you share with them where the blessed life can be found, it might just change their view. Right? I mean... If you've been sitting with me Wednesday morning, or if you're sitting with somebody at school or work or community group later this week, I want you to think about how to share this hope by using these first two beatitudes in the story of your life, right? How to share this with somebody else. Think about this. Can you not share your testimony of how you, you recognized your spiritual poverty, of how you responded with godly sorrow, about how you received the gospel of Jesus Christ, about how you received comfort from him in that now and for eternity? Can you not share your story in that way? I think it's a great recipe for us to report what we received. And if you think about it, guys, this is why I actually shared my struggle with you Wednesday morning. If you think about it, that's what I've done with you this morning. Is I've shared a way that I was struggling on Wednesday morning, the things that I was thinking about, the external I share with you the hope that I found in God's Word, the reminder of who I am in Christ, the reminder of my sin, the reminder of the freedom and comfort that I found in Christ. And I've done that just by sharing with you this morning. And I did that just to show you that it can be possible for you as well. <clears throat> One of the things that I love here about my work at Crosspoint is I get to meet with so many of you. I was sharing that with our membership class this morning. Uh, but my role here at Crosspoint uh, is, it, it encompasses a lot, but... Uh, I'm full-time here, uh, Kai and Lance, you guys know them as well, my two co-pastors. I don't know if you know this or not, but those guys work full-time with a ministry called I Go Global. Um, that's their full-time job. And then they work here part-time on our preaching team and alongside me as co-elders providing oversight for this church body. It's a, it really is a blessing to use that word. But uh, one of the biggest blessings it is to me is it, uh, it keeps me off the rotation uh, preaching rotation uh, as, as often which allows me a lot more time to spend time with you. I get to hear a lot of your stories. And if I th- once I start thinking about it, I'm like, these are the stories that I hear from you. When I sit down with you and I go, hey, sh- share your story with me, a lot of times you guys will. And you'll start, whether you know it or not, by sharing a time that you recognized your spiritual poverty, responded to with godly sorrow, and received the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about my friend Scott Gordon. Um, Scott and I met about six years ago for the first time. A lot of you guys know Scott. Uh, I was sitting down with him at a Starbucks. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not, just to confess you guys, I'm not good at small talk. I, I, get, I can get kind of awkward. Uh, and so, uh, but I do have a tendency to just kind of try to cut through the fluff because I want to avoid that awkwardness. No, but I so, I, so a lot of times I'll just ask this question. I'll go, hey, tell me about a time in your life that you experienced brokenness. And man, Scott looked at me that day. He was Okay. And he shared with me, and we got done with that coffee meeting. I'll never forget what he said. He goes, dude, I just shared more with you than I've shared with anybody else except for my wife. What just happened? I said, man, thank you for sharing your story. And I'm not going to share it. It's his story to share. But I shared this point of the story with you because what I've seen happen in Scott and his family's life over the past six years is the more comfortable he's gotten sharing that and sharing that story, the more blessing I've seen beyond his life and his family's life. You even saw, heard him and his wife Miranda a couple of years ago share their story from the stage in front of you on a Sunday morning, right? Complete vulnerability. If you weren't here for that, it's on our website. I encourage you to go grab that testimony. There are a few others on there as well. Scott shared his story of brokenness, translated spiritual poverty. He shared with me um, how he was convicted of his sin. Translated, godly sorrow. Scott shared with me about when he began to uh, fully receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and find comfort from his sin, right? Share your story. It's a great way to report what we have received. I hope that encourages you this morning. I know a lot of you guys have been uh, blessed by hearing Scott and Miranda's story. So maybe, maybe, maybe God's pressing you to share yours in this way as well, Right? Just maybe. Now, I want to, I say this with all seriousness, but uh, it's our hope that this series and the Beatitudes truly blesses you, right? And, and so we just said, heads of staff, what can we do to really help equip our people? And we go, hey, this is not a, some technical equipping device. This is a bookmark. <clears throat> but you receive these on the way in. If you didn't, uh, you can certainly get one on the way out. But what we've done... Our staff put this together. We listed the Beatitudes on this bookmark for you. You can tuck it in your Bible. You can keep it with you. But kind of, here's a challenge for you. It's to memorize these Beatitudes over the next six weeks. Right? We took, we took on the first two today. We've got six more weeks in the Beatitudes. I want to challenge you to memorize them. Memorize them not just yourself, but with your family, maybe your community group. Right? If this is where God's blessing is found, the blessed life now, guys, Shouldn't we store that up in our hearts? And I hope this is a blessing to you. Let me pray. God, we thank you for today. God, we just ask that you would be with us as we walk this week. You would help us to focus not on the external, but God, on you. Understanding that you are the greatest blessing that there is. God, help us not to conform to the patterns of this world and look to those external things. But God, let us learn by paradox. The way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. The broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, and that to give is to receive. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.